I cannot remember a Palm Sunday in my entire life when I have not been gathered with others as the church family to worship God. Today I want us to look at John chapter 12, the first 19 verses that you just heard read. Let's look at the nature of faith as seen even as Jesus came within days of the crucifixion. Why did some believe and some did not? Why today do some believe and some do not? Two people can hear the exact same message and one chooses to believe and another doesn't. Sometimes we choose to believe in what makes our life convenient, what makes life easy. Sometimes we choose to believe in what is verifiable, that unless you see it with your eyes or hear it and can touch it, you choose not to believe in that. Sometimes we choose to believe based on what our family thinks is important and what they think is true. A few years ago, I was a student in an online class about Islam, and the the lecturer who was a converted Muslim in the very first lecture that we, to which we listened, he said that for those of us who've grown up in America and have no background in, in Islam, he said we could have no idea how difficult it is for a Muslim even to consider the claims of Christ because of the implications it would have with other members of their families. Sometimes we choose to believe in what the majority of the culture thinks is true. We, we just live downstream of the culture. But some people can hear or see the exact same things, and one believes and the other doesn't. And this is very true, we see, with the case of the raising of Lazarus from the grave. In John chapter 11, the, the previous chapter, uh, we are told uh, about that. And in verse 45 of chapter 11, it, it said that at that time the religi- religious leaders had decided that they wanted to put Jesus to death. And so we know that, that true faith involves our whole being, your whole being, your intellect, your understanding, your will. Belief is a response to truth. We have to choose to exercise faith. It does not happen automatically. You must decide, I believe this. I am depending on this. I am resting on this. I am certain of this, and I am holding on to it. The setting of John chapter 12 is the last days leading up to the arrest and crucifixion for Jesus. It is a very, very fitting passage to look at on Palm Sunday. In John 11, as I just mentioned, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And now an uh, untold amount of time has passed since that happened. And we come to the beginning of chapter 12. And John begins by saying this is six days before the Passover, which would be what we would call this next Friday. And Jesus has returned to the village, the small village uh, of Bethany, and he's invited to dinner at the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And John tells us that Martha was serving the meal, and Lazarus was one of those seated at the table. And during the meal, it tells us in verse 3, something happens involving their sister Mary. Verse 3 of John tells us that she takes a, a container 
uh, roughly a pound, about 12 ounces of ointment or perfume made from nard. And she, she uses this to anoint the body of Jesus. Uh, it's important for us to know who Mary was. Who was this person? This is Lazarus's sister. She had helped to care for her brother while he was sick and while he was dying. She was there when he died. She probably helped to prepare his body for burial. And so she had walked through this, this time of grief and then the horrific scene of the burial at the tomb. She was there when Jesus finally showed up, it would appear, days after his death, after he'd been notified that Lazarus, a, a close friend of Jesus, one whom he loved, was sick. And she had seen the miracle where Jesus had raised her brother back to life. And we know from that passage that she had believed the words of Jesus when he said he was the resurrection and the life. How would you feel about a person who'd done that? What if you had a, a uh, family member, someone you loved, um, perhaps an older sibling or a younger sibling, and that person had been sick for a long time, and a nurse or a doctor came and saw your sibling and, and cared for them and administered the medicine or treatment that saw them be healed? How would you feel toward that caregiver? You would be very grateful. You'd say, I, I can't thank you for the rest of my life enough. So she brings this very expensive perfume. You know, in today's economy, the most expensive perfume that can be purchased is called Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty. Uh, it's simply called number one, and it's priced at $12,721 an ounce. A bottle of that perfume costs $215,000. Now, what Mary used would not have been quite that expensive, but it was worth about one year's salary for a common laborer. So it was extremely extravagant to do what she did. Maybe she had inherited it. Perhaps it had belonged to her mother or her grandmother and was to be used only at a, an occasion that was very, very special. And Mary determines this was that occasion. Mark and Matthew tell us that she poured it on his head as well as on his feet. And then she wiped, it, she wiped his feet with her hair. And you'll remember it was the role of the servant to wash the feet of the guest. It was a lowly task, and yet Mary is happy to do for Jesus what a servant was required to do. And she uses it all up, probably in just a matter of seconds. It was extravagant love. There are times for extravagance, and Mary knew this was such a time. She knew Jesus was worth such an extravagant expression of her faith and love. So Mary, in this passage, Mary had real faith. It wasn't shallow. It wasn't temperamental. You might even call it a very sacrificial or costly faith. Now let's look at the second type of faith, and we see that in Judas. Watching Mary's actions are the other disciples of Jesus. And Matthew writes, and he tells us, that they are all critical of what Mary has done. But John, here in chapter 12, he zooms in on Judas. As Judas watched what Mary did, he was upset. 
And he objects. And he says, what are you doing? Don't you realize how much that ointment is worth? We should have sold it and given the money to the poor. So he accuses her and he condemns her and he criticizes her, but he does so with a motive which sounds noble and compassionate and even spiritual. He portrays himself as motivated by a concern for poor people. Now, as a pastor, I've heard this on a number of occasions. I remember many years ago, many years ago, this church uh, built a building. And it was a building we needed for classrooms and meetings and nursery area. And a local reporter came to interview me, but mainly to do a little story, a little column about this new building in downtown Macon. And as I was showing this reporter around, there's the two of us, the comment was made by her, wow, just think what a large homeless shelter could have been built instead of this. I've talked to people before that object to the fact that, that some of us and our church as a whole gives money to foreign missions, to foreign missionaries, missionaries who are serving cross-culturally. And probably more times than I can count, I've heard people say, I don't know why people do that. We have enough needs here in our own country. Well, could it be, could it be, and only God really knows hearts, could it be that such comments are intended to sound noble, as though behind that is a desire to help people? But really, the, true, the criticism, I think, is often just a self-justification for doing nothing. Is your criticism truly driven by compassion? It wasn't with Judas. John tells us what was in Judas's heart. Judas was not concerned at all about the poor. He wanted that money to stay in the treasury because he had access to the treasury since he kept up with it. He was the keeper, the keeper of the purse for Jesus and his disciples. And sometimes he helped himself to what was there. He, he stole, he embezzled from the group. So when Mary uses expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet, Judas saw a lot of his own personal profit lost. Judas was living for temporal values. Do you know that he betrayed Jesus for one-third the value of this ointment, the money he received? So he was living for temporal values, for money, for his own benefit. And he learned to act the right way and say the right things, but he was deceived. And in his heart, he truly did not believe. Could that possibly be you this morning? Maybe you're a person who attends church regularly. You may talk like a Christian. You may even intentionally act like one. But deep down, you know it isn't real for you. Well, in verses 7 through 8, Jesus speaks some words that may seem rather callous and harsh in response to Judas's thoughts. And he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now let's be clear. We know from the scriptures Jesus was concerned about the needy. Jesus was compassionate toward the poor. But what he's saying is at that moment, there would be other opportunities to attend to, to acts of Christian charity. 
But on the other hand, the opportunity to show love and to honor him was quickly vanishing, for Jesus was only days away from his crucifixion. So the issue here with Mary was one of timing. When he says, you can help any time you want, but you will not always have me, Mary, in a sense, was saying, I have saved this for Jesus' burial, but I am going to give this gift now. I can help the poor tomorrow and the next day and the next, but I will not have another opportunity to express my worship and affection for Jesus. So Judas had a false faith. Mary had a real faith. Now let's look at a third type of faith that we see in the chief priest. The chief priests were members of a court in that day called the Sanhedrin. That was the, the supreme court, the equivalent of the supreme court of all the Jews in the world at that time. They had extensive power and authority. Did they believe in God? Yes. Did they believe in the scriptures, the law and the prophets? Yes. Did they think God was capable of accomplishing miracles? Without question. But their faith was limited and it was misplaced. They had a garden variety faith in God, but it was not a proper understanding of the Messiah. And so they planned to kill Jesus, we saw in verse 53 of chapter 11. But now, verse 10 tells us, they plot also to put Lazarus to death. What was Lazarus's crime? Why would they want to see him put to death? Was, was there treason involved? No. Had Lazarus committed murder? No. Had Lazarus committed blasphemy? No. What was his crime? He'd been raised from the dead by Jesus. And as a result of this, in verse 11, it says many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus on account of Lazarus. The Bible says persecution always follows those who serve Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 15, it says, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. And then in 2 Timothy, we have that verse many of us have heard numerous times. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible says you will be persecuted because of your commitment to Christ. You and I can try and be as amiable and diplomatic and gentle as possible with people, but sooner or later you will be attacked. And it certainly happened to Lazarus. And don't be surprised if it comes even also from religious people. We've been stunned this week to see the generosity of Samaritan's Purse setting up this makeshift hospital, a temporary hospital in Central Park in New York City. Uh, with their own funding from their, their supporters, supplying doctors and nurses and care, and yet to see the attacks that have come by many because Samaritan's Purse holds to biblical views of marriage and sexuality. And yet they are only there to help. You and I can try as be as, and be as amiable as we want to be, but if we are followers of Christ, we will be persecuted. 
And that was true with Lazarus. As the way the chief priests saw it, it would be to their advantage not only to get rid of Jesus, but to get rid of Lazarus. For if he were put to death, then that would silence those who were promoting the fact that Jesus had done a miracle in raising him from the dead. So the chief priest had a misplaced faith. Judas had a false faith. Mary had a real faith. But now let me show you where perhaps many of us may fit in. And that's with the crowds in Jerusalem. They had a fickle faith. Verse 12 tells us Jesus comes into town. Now it's that that first day of the week, what we call Sunday. That's why we celebrate this on Palm Sunday. This was different than anything he had done before. He had repeatedly withdrawn from the crowds, but now he apparently changes his strategy. He's purposefully going public. He intentionally is going to draw attention to himself. He's going to force the hand of those who want him dead. And we're told in verses 12 and 13 that a large crowd had come to the Passover feast. We're not given the exact numbers, but the Jewish historian Josephus estimated the attendance at Passover just a few decades after this, that it was to be between uh, 2 million and 2.7 million people. So it's very reasonable reasonable to assume that the, the multitude in Jerusalem included perhaps a large portion of the two million visitors that would come at that time of the year. When the people heard that Jesus was coming, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. Why palm branches? Well, it had to do with a military victory that had taken taken place 200 years before when a Jewish leader named Simon Maccabeus drove the enemies out of Jerusalem. And at that time, after that victory, they had a parade which celebrated the victory with music and the waving of palm branches. And so from that point on, the palm branch became a national sign and a symbol of military victory of triumph. They thought that Jesus was getting ready to give them victory over the Romans. And they shout, Hosanna, the word which is derived from the Hebrew, which means save now. The people looked to Jesus for salvation, to be saved, but not in a spiritual sense. It was going to be, they hoped and thought, in a military sense. And he's riding a donkey. Why a donkey? Well, it was a fulfillment of prophecy some 500 years before in Zechariah 9.9. The prophecy had been made that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey. Also, riding on a donkey was a kingly act which identified him with the royal line of David. But the people expected a military king who would break the back of the Romans who were occupying force there in Jerusalem. But that was not his plan. That is why they despised him, because he did not meet their expectations. They wanted Jesus on their own terms. Today, we often want Jesus on our terms. The crowd wanted a Jesus who would conform to their plans uh, politically and militarily rather than conforming them to his plan. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, not to destroy their sins. They did not want him to destroy their superficial religion that only dealt with outward appearance. Aren't we like this today? 
We want Jesus, but we want him on our terms. We want a Jesus who will make me uh, healthy and wealthy and prosperous, uh, not one who asks for obedience and commitment and devotion. We may praise him as long as he meets our selfish desires. Some today may say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't believe everything Jesus taught, and certainly not those parts of the Bible I don't like. Uh, I mean, my God, the God I worship, is a God of love who always wants us to be happy, and therefore anything I can do to be happy, he obviously approves of. He would never punish uh, anyone. If those thoughts ever cross your mind, then you and we are like the crowds in Jerusalem. We want Jesus, but we want him on our terms. And those in Jerusalem were expecting and wanting a military deliverer. Now, here's the problem with a fickle faith like that. If we just want Jesus on our terms, the problem is that faith will not endure. It cannot stand up in a crisis. It cannot endure prolonged hardship. It's like a person entering into a marriage assuming that I'm getting married because it's going to meet all my needs continually and always. I won't have to give anything. I won't have to help anyone. It will meet my needs. But that does not last. And that's why the crowd, or at least some in the crowd, who shouted Hosanna on this day, shouted crucify a few days later. The Bible says he is the vine, we are the branches. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is the shepherd, we are his sheep. And maybe you are sad. Maybe you are sad right now. And you are very perplexed at what is going on. And where is God in all of this? But when the crisis hits, that's when you need a strong faith to hang on to God. A fickle faith is easily crushed when hard times come. And you may say, and I've heard it, I used to believe, but X happened. This friend of mine died, or I was betrayed, or my, my wife left me. And ever since that time, I, I just could not believe anymore. And so I lost my faith. My response as a pastor would be, good, lose that faith. Good? Yes, because you don't want a faith that cannot carry you through hardship and difficulty. A faith which cannot sustain you in crisis is not a good faith. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. A faith which, a faith which can easily be lost is really no faith at all. And I'm sorry Jesus did not meet your expectations. But now use the Bible and get the right expectations. Come to Jesus as he is. Come to the God who is able to do whatever he pleases, with whomever he chooses, whenever he wishes. I want to appeal to you to believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. You may fear what you might lose. You may say, well, there are no guarantees, and I'm afraid my fears will be realized. I might lose friends or face or social standing or funds. But the Bible says you stand to gain everything. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He says you will receive multiple things that you have now and in the end eternal life. Do you desire that? If so, pray with me today. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to live and to die for sins. And we thank you and accept your payment for sins. We give ourselves to you. Make us the people you want us to be. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now please stand, if you will, for our benediction. This was the benediction that Aaron was commanded by the Lord to pronounce on the people after they had gathered. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.